there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. City decided to pick an official anthem, and to absolutely no one's surprise, it was Gigi Allen's New York Tonight. Oh, no, no, wait, it was New York, New York. Uh, also, Coca-Cola changed the course of Western civilization and waged war on my teeth by introducing cherry Coke to consumers, both canned and bottled. EastEnders aired its first episode on the BBC. Mickey Mouse made his first official trip to China, and no, I don't know how that worked either, and I was alive when it happened. And music belonged to the ladies. What's Love Got to Do With It and Cindy Lauper slated the Grammys. Radio was dizzy in love with Madonna, whose album Like a Virgin sat on top of the charts all month, even as a debut album by young Whitney Houston hit shelves. That is indeed the sweet sound of February 1985 that you hear, my friends. I am your host, Drew McQueenie, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the ubiquitous Scott Weinberg. What's up, buddy? What is up? My name is Scott, and I'm here to say we're here to talk about 85 February. <laughs> wow. Do, do you want to start the podcast by sitting on your balls like that? Oh, my God. <laughs> Last month was a veritable train wreck. There were a few small nuggets of goodness. What you and I have known throughout our entire lives is something that many, many uh, movie fans know, and it's something that never really seems to change that much. With very few exceptions, January and February are cinematic wastelands. I would argue that this month is the exception to that, because while it's not a month with a lot of titles, this month gets so good and it just gets better and better as we go. So, All right. Well, Drew, one thing that never seems to change and no matter what the decade, no matter what the hairstyle, no matter what the music, you will always have movies like Fast Forward. They've got the talent. They've got the guts, but now they've got to hit the place where the best learn their moves, where you get blown away if you're second best on the street. It's their one and only shot at the top. Sidney Poitier's Fast Forward. Kids just got to dance, man. It's just a dance movie. And you know what? 10 years ago, it was Step Up and to Save the Last Dance. Those are big hits, but there are a few that just go nowhere. And this is one of those obscurities that is, I, I hate to say it, despite the fact that it's directed by the brilliant Sidney Poitier, who has directed some very good films. This feels like something that he just used to fill like a summer to make uh, getting a paycheck. I think you and I have different opinions of Sidney Poitier as a director. I think he's a terrific actor. I think he is an icon and I think he is absolutely a civil rights titan. I think he's a terrible director. And I think this is right in his wheelhouse. It is generic. It is forgettable. A bunch of kids from Sandusky, Ohio, come to New York too early for an audition that they kind of bully and trick their way into. And then have to <laughs> wait for like eight weeks and somehow stay alive in New York. What cracks me up most about it is this notion that these kids, what they're doing is so revolutionary that they're going to come into New York and conquer it. And there is something fundamentally insulting about picking that city, because if there's any one city in America where dancing has it covered, it's New York. And these kids come in and like 10 minutes after they've been there, they're like on dance floors, beating the crap out of people and showing everybody what their moves are and everybody's blown away. 
It is fantasy land, and it's fantasy land that is not helped by the fact that none of the choreography is terribly interesting or memorable. The dancers aren't that good, and none of these dancers are very interesting actors. This feels like nothing more than a 1940s screenplay that someone blew the dust off. It's very 40s in formula, and it's very 40s in how it thinks about dance. I don't think he had a particularly modern take on dance, so the movie feels dated and stuck to that moment at the same time it's no fun it's not very good at all and it's dull uh just as a footnote he did the three films in the 70s with bill cosby uptown saturday night let's do it again piece of the action then he had a mega mega smash hit with stir crazy then he did hanky panky with gene wilder and gilda radner not very good then he did this in 85 and then in 90 he did ghost ad and after that he promptly retired from directing I like the three in the 70s a little bit, but even then, I, he's not a great director. So, hey, uh, we have covered so far a whole lot of stuff from this next family, and it really wasn't until watching this next film that I finally figured out who every one of them is and how they are related to each other, and I now have a handle on the Petrie family, thanks to the Bay Boy. For Donald, this was to be the most unforgettable year of his life. Sorry this had to happen to them. I like to know boys. They think about girls. And it was the year he discovered love and the games that lovers play. I saw what you did! You hear me? I saw! Lee Woman and Kiefer Sutherland in The Bay Boy. This is a slightly starchy but earnest and engaging tale. It takes place in 1936, Nova Scotia, Canada. Kiefer Sutherland coming of age story, and it deals with many of the things that the coming of age story will deal with in avoiding licentious priests and uh, fumbling your way around with a, a willing young lady. Oh, also, uh, the cop down the street murdered a family for their house. Yeah, that's pretty wild. What I like about it is that it D- Daniel Petrie's previous two films before this were Six Pack and Fort Apache the Bronx. <laughs> like, and this guy goes way back. He directed Raise It in the Sun. He's a great director. But just that that trio in a row, Fort Apache, The Bronx, Six Pack, and The Bay Boy just seems uh, incongruous. He is the journeyman. When we talk about those those guys, and he's from Canadian TV first, one of the hardest things is being able to direct anything, not just the things that you particularly have on your mind. And look, they're totally different kinds of filmmaking. I think Petrie is a guy who, you know, when he made Raisin in the Sun. Raisin in the Sun was a job nobody wanted because of the subject matter at the time. I love that he has always had a slightly progressive attitude and it's never like heavy handed in his movies, but he definitely is a guy who over time, I think, only really personally appeared in a few of his movies. And this is one of them. This one is largely based on memories of his from childhood. And yeah, if you told me that this film was 98% autobiographical from the writer director, Daniel Petrie, I'd be like, yeah, it feels like it. (laughs) I think it is. It's well-observed Kiefer Sutherland. This is his introductory movie and he's on screen for pretty much the whole film. He's still a little green, in my opinion. He has moments where he's legitimately moving and and convincing, and then a couple of moments where he's got scenes where he's got to work against Liv Ullman and Peter Donat, who are amazing actors. And occasionally, he feels a little bit unsure of himself, but overall, he's, he's really good. You asked a question on Twitter recently, and it's funny because you asked it like a day before I watched this movie, has there ever been a sex scene that is necessary to the plot of a film? And I think there's two of them in this movie. Both sequences that involve sex in this movie are handled with a real delicacy and a maturity. The first is probably the most important, which is him losing his virginity. It's a very touching scene. I don't often think that these scenes are essential. I think they're often played for sex uh, or they're often played for like TNA or laughs. Well, a big part of it is that there's there's no nudity here. There's no emphasis on that. And so that's not what the scene's about. The scene is about the details of behavior. And that's everything that is his character in that moment it's him realizing how much he doesn't know it's him admitting that he's a little scared and a little bit unsure and all of that plays out in that that sequence it's really terrifically played and then the other so there's that scene in the movie where he goes away with the priest and there's they're on a trip and something happens and when he comes back he no longer wants to be a priest and he can't really talk to his parents about it we see that whole scene play out between him and the priest And it is so well written and so well played between the two of them. And it's a tough sequence. It is so quietly uncomfortable. I'm like, how long is he going to let this scene go? And he doesn't overplay the melodrama or the horror of it. That moment 
when he tries to cross that line and the way it plays out is so perfectly handled. It's overall a good movie, but the stuff involving the cop who kills the neighbor and the stuff involving his coming of age, every now and then he really nails a moment and you realize, okay, this, there's a real filmmaker and there's some some real depth going on here. And it's a good, solid little movie. Drew, let us now discuss a very important international film. This is a Canadian import that marked the impact and the arrival of the dancer size movement in America. Give it up for the Heavenly Bodies. Heavenly Bodies, the hot dance movie with a high power music of the Daz Band, Cheryl Lynn, Bonnie Pointer, The Sparks, The Cube, and Dwight Twilley. You're off. Heavenly Bodies, the dancing, rockin', reach for a dream movie that won't stop until it takes you to the top. Heavenly Bodies, rated R. This is They Shoot Horses, Don't They, by way of Flashdance. Oh, wow. It is really only interesting at all in the last 30 minutes. It feels, for the most part, like it was choreographed by your friend's six-year-old sister after she ate a whole box of Fruity Pebbles and then watched a robicize. Like, it is over-enthusiastic about how much we want to watch people jazzercise. What would you say to our listeners who maybe caught this one on HBO and have a few fond memories of the, hey, let's say the Dancer Size Studio movie? I'll say this for Cynthia Dale, who is the lead. She sure can exercise. There's no question about that. Yeah, I'm not not a fan, but I'm glad you brought it up. If our listeners out there have never seen the film, they shoot horses, don't they? Put that in your queue. Oh, my God. What a movie. It's not 80s, but it's Grady's. Wow! We now move to one of our favorite sidebars, Drew McWeeny in How Is This Not a TV Movie? Discussing Martin's Day. Uh, directed by a guy named Alan Gibson, uh, was indeed released by MGM. That's how it's not a TV movie. How is a movie with Lindsay Wagner, John Ireland, Saul Rubinek, James Coburn, Richard Harris, how is that not a TV movie? Yeah, MGM UA, man. Criminal who's on the run. He grabs a kid. The kid doesn't want to be at home either. And he and the kid end up bonding while the police think they're going after a hardened criminal who might kill this kid. Richard Harris is the criminal who escapes from prison and then goes on the run. And Justin Henry from Kramer versus Kramer and 16 Candles is the kid. I believe we talked about this when we did 16 candles i think in that movie he is brutally funny that kid he's a piece of garbage he's terrible to her but he's hilarious and his timing is great i think he is directed to be a drag in this movie and it's whimsical and it's supposed to be funny and it is not and boy nothing chaps my ass more than whimsy that doesn't work i don't believe any of what happens in this movie and richard harris is at that stage in his career where he seems wildly uncomfortable, period, as a lead. And I would assume frequently drunk. I get why you would not think anybody would want to release this theatrically. It is baffling that it was. And uh, if you make the mistake of tracking it down, I apologize in advance. I watched it so you don't have to. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, we now move on to a fairly obscure teen sex comedy, although it was in heavy rotation with me and my friends back in the mid-80s. Is there anyone you like? Marilyn McCauley. Hey, watch the tongue. I bet you I can get you Marilyn in 30 days. You okay, Jonathan? You seen Rebel Without a Cause? Twice. Want to go again? There's no time like the first time. Mischief. Yeah, or as I call it, classy porkies. For years, I described this as somebody realized, hey, there's all these different teen sex comedies why don't we do that in the 50s? And then just recently, I realized, hey, idiot, the movie that kickstarted this whole freaking craze was a sex comedy that took place in the 50s. At least the idea with Mischief and Porky's is that you're looking at mores then through a modern lens. The idea of the nostalgia was supposed to, I think, serve as an antidote to what the 50s had been packaged as by that point, which was Happy Days. Nobody on Happy Days was having sex. Even the Fonz isn't having sex. Not really. No, nah, I think Potsy was getting laid, man. No, I do. See, and in these, that's the joke, is that this is happy days if people took their clothes off. I guess at the time that might have been seen as fresh or interesting. It's weird because this movie is so clearly a studio-level production where they spent money on the look. It feels like a big movie in terms of cost. 
And it's still basically a sleazy, dumb teen comedy. What I found interesting about this movie is that it is mostly amiable and likable, even when it's a little bit raunchy. But the ladies in the film shine, whereas the two male leads are kind of wet noodles. Chris Nash, who's supposed to be sort of the tough guy who moves to town and takes Doug McKeon under his wing and teaches him how to talk to girls and everything, totally forgettable. And that's a huge problem because that guy should be the Fonz if we're talking about the Happy Days model. And the Doug McKeon character, he's halfway likable and then frequently you don't like him at all. I think he's a real dick is written frequently. Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Preston are the two main young ladies in the movie. Jamie Gertz is in it. And Jamie Gertz is supposed to be the one who he doesn't notice, but he should because clearly she's the good girl who's just right for him. We have to start charting this, Drew, because this goes back maybe a little further than the cliche that every movie fan knows of the girl who is obviously pretty, but her hair's frumpy and she wears glasses. So in act three, when she fixes her hair and takes off her glasses, boom, she's a model. Our hero goes through all kinds of crap with other characters And then at the end of the movie, that girl is there as his consolation prize. I do feel weird about the way Kelly Preston was used in 80s films, because I think she's um, clearly a very good comedian. I think she has terrific timing. And I think what she does well in this and in Secret Admirer and in a couple of other films that she appears in is she's the girl that has all the experience or appears to have all the experience and is a little more worldly than the people around her, but not a bad person. It's a hard thing to play. And I think the disservice that was done her is even though clearly we can watch these movies and see the comic timing and see that she's good. And I do think Preston deserved a way bigger career than she had. I also think it is clear that they hired her to get naked. That's what they're hiring her for. And then the good performances in spite of that, I feel it's very exploitative looking at these now. And I get it. At 15, I saw this movie and I didn't have that opinion. But I look at it now and she doesn't need to be naked. It's just unnecessary. This cast is good enough. The production design is good enough. It didn't have to be that movie. And it's a weird moment to look back at and really, because now you wouldn't make that movie that way. You wouldn't make this movie today and just do it for the nudity. So, uh, And you made a good point when we discussed the Bay Boy and there is the scene where in which our hero is deflowered. That scene is just as romantic and sweet and sexy as it wants to be. And it doesn't have the overt nudity, whereas Mischief, the scene works and is kind of funny and, and everything. But you know, the American version of that scene is, yeah, you got to show. Yeah. And then it becomes about that. And it's, you made the movie so well, you almost classed yourself out of making the movie you were making. Now let's move on to a film, not the first, uh, not the very first, but one of the first films to help make Madonna absolutely eponymous, ubiquitous, omnipresent. It started with a film known overseas as crazy for you here in the U S it's called vision quest. Ever since the girl of his dreams moved into Loudon's house, he can't keep his mind on what he's doing. And he certainly can't do what's on his mind. But give the guy a break. When you're in love, you can do some seriously crazy things. This is the new film from the executive producers of Flashdance. Vision Quest, rated R. Starts Friday, February 15th at a theater near you. I love this movie. I forgot I loved it. I don't get it. I don't get this screenplay. I don't get why we're supposed to really like Matthew Modine. I think that Linda Fiorentino, she is unbelievably awesome in this movie. And everything else around her is just drab. She's good. She's interesting. But the movie's definitely about Loudon. It's about this kid who gets this crazy idea. And the crazy idea is... When you're young and you're figuring out who you are, you frequently set goals that make no sense. Dude, I'm going through this right now. I have a teenager in my house, and I'll tell you this. I am remembering how insane teenagers are and how frequently the answer to a question is, I don't know, because they don't. They're out of their minds. What he does in this movie is he sets a goal in his mind. He's going to drop two weight classes in wrestling, and he's going to wrestle the best kid in the state. That's insane. You don't drop two weight classes. You just don't. If you're a wrestler and you're already at competitive weight, chances are you've gotten to where your body is comfortable. In this movie, they show exactly what that would be like. He gets sick. He hurts himself. He's not healthy. He starts coughing up blood at one point, but he's determined he's going to do it because he thinks it's important. 
That is real. That is an absolutely real adolescent coming of age story. Kids get crazy ideas. Kids decide they're going to do something. And the guy that he's going up against, Brian Shute, is an admirably written monster. Now, what's weird is I forgot all of my love for this movie. And the reason that's weird is because, dude, I wrestled in high school because of this film and because of the world according to Garp. And she comes into his life at this interesting moment. He's so young and she knows he's a baby that she resists as long as she can. And the little dalliance they have isn't meant to be a love affair forever. It's meant to give him one more step of experience. I like the way she's written and the way she's used because the movie never becomes about her. It's about the impact she has on Loudon as she moves through during this other thing. It's interesting to hear insight from someone who uh, lived this kind of stuff and would watch the film from that perspective. As I'm watching the first hour of this movie, to me, I'm thinking the, the director and the writer are giving me very little about Loudon to not just necessarily like, but to care about. I'm just not that interested in him as a person. Interesting, because I I will probably be the more strident Matthew Modine fan on this podcast. I, I think I was a really strident Matthew Modine fan in the 80s, and I like that he has a weird energy about him that is not any other young actor at the time. He's kind of laid back. He's a little bit strange. Not a huge fan of this movie, but I will agree with you 100 uh, percent like a John Cusack would uh, have taken to this character. Interestingly, too, he's a very unique individual. I could see this guy and the guy from Say Anything hanging out. Absolutely. I think they would be friends. I get why it might not be for everybody, but I think the reasons I love it are exactly because it's not down the middle. It's its own weird little thing over here. And I like that. I know Vision Quest definitely has a small but vocal fan base. If you mention it on Twitter, you will get people who like it considerably more than I do. I wouldn't call it a bad film. It just I had a lot of trouble finding an entry point. So I, I kind of watched it as a relic of 80s attitudes and fashion and music and, and sports. Uh, but I never connected to it on a personal level at all. Despite Matthew Modine, it could have been nominated for this movie. He is fantastic. So, Scott, let's go to Florida. All right, let's talk about a movie in which Kurt Russell is a newspaper reporter who is in contact with a serial killer, and he keeps getting little clues about murders that may or may not happen. Hint, they do. It's time for <laughs> Joe Pantoliano in The Mean Season. The killer wants a listener. Anderson. It was me. I killed her. The reporter wants a headline. He may be entering Pulitzer territory. He won't talk to anybody else. But this time, the story is coming to him. If I wanted you or your girlfriend, it'd be so easy. Kurt Russell, Mariel Hemingway. Malcolm! The Mean Season, rated R. It starts out pretty provocatively and slowly just gets very rote, predictable, and redundant. I hate to use an off-used descriptor, but it feels TV movie-ish. Uh, this is... The beginning of a run of movies in which we're going to see people who are very, very bad at being reporters. I'm going to call these the bad news movies. And we are here for the first bad news movie where if this guy was a real reporter, holy shit, would he be in jail? He is awful at his job. He is unethical. He is a terrible human being. He allows things to happen that he should never, ever, by any barometer, allow to happen in real life. It's a nightmare to watch if you've ever worked news at all. And, you know, while I would say it's worth checking out for Kurt Russell completists or character actor aficionados, it's just a very forgettable potboiler of a thriller. It's not much of a performance from him. He doesn't have anything to do. I think Kurt Russell is at his very best when he's allowed to have some swagger. Yeah, some personality, for God's sake. Of course he can play low-key. Of course he can play every man. <laughs> but why? Why hire him? Why buy a sports car and park it in your garage? Why? I don't get it. From now on, whenever we discuss a film in which Joe Pantoliano appears, we announce it as Joe Pantoliano in. <laughs> there are few character actors who breach the generations like Joe Pants. I just love the guy. You could just sense him having so much fun. 
as an actor. This is one of those where I imagine you sitting there and as each character actor pops up in it, you going, I don't even care that the movie's not very good. I'm just happy to see that guy. And this has got a whole lot of happy to see that guy moments. If this movie worked, it's Silence of the Lambs because you have the relationship between the reporter who is covering a serial killer and doesn't want him to kill anybody but wants the great story and the killer who wants the publicity and so has to keep the guy on the string. If you do that right, sure, there's a movie in that. But Jesus Christ, they they miss the boat completely. This movie doesn't even know that it's supposed to be thrilling or suspenseful. Oh, yeah. So, Scott, I spent a lot of time in Florida, and so Florida movies, I, I have a particular feeling about good ones or bad ones. I, I think there's a terrible Florida movie. You have very strong feelings about how your city is portrayed in film. Can we talk about a movie that I think has one of the greatest senses of region of the 80s? And that would be Peter Weir's Witness. Harrison Ford is John Book, a big city cop. I'm a police officer, ma'am. I have to talk to the boy. A small country boy. They have nothing in common. We have nothing to do with your laws. But a murder. Your son's a material witness to a homicide. Now you have a witness. Yeah, now I got a witness. If they find me, they find the boy. Harrison Ford. Witness. Rated R. Witness is a movie that I tried to love as a kid, and I couldn't because it just didn't speak to me that much. Uh, I wanted uh, Harrison Ford, and while he is ridiculously charming, and this might be one of his best performances ever, uh, he's so gruff often in other films that he's just so lovable here. He plays a cop who has to protect an Amish boy and his mother. Uh, The boy is Lucas Haas. The mother is Kelly McGillis. And after he is shot by a crooked cop, played by the awesome Danny Glover, he must uh, hightail it out to Lancaster County and hide out in Amish country while he heals up and tries to figure out what his next step will be in relation to these dirty cops. It sounds like a movie that anybody could direct. Any decent action or drama director could do a good job with this screenplay. I think Weir is an unsung giant. I think I think he is one of our very best filmmakers, and I think he came out of that Australian new wave where there were so many really smart, really film literate guys who just understood that every aspect of what you do in a movie matters. Weir is exceptional at image, and I think his work with John Seal here is just terrific. The way they stage the murder. There are individual moments in the first half hour of this movie that Forget moving images, just as still images are strikingly beautiful. And here's where I think Weir's genius is. One of my favorite films of his is Fearless, a movie that I, I just feel like people don't really remember. I didn't see when it came out. That one is all experiential. What he does so well is he puts you into someone's shoes so that you feel what it's like. And he does it for two characters in this movie, not just one. It's hard enough to do a really great movie about perspective where you get somebody's point of view right. But he does both. He does John Book's perspective as he moves into the Amish world and he has to deal with all of that. But he also beautifully does the perspective of that little boy when he first comes into our world. It's just beautiful filmmaking. And it does such a great job. It's so respectful of what their community means to them and how they stand outside of culture. And it doesn't treat them as aliens. It doesn't treat them as weirdos. It doesn't make it like we're going into some weird other world. This film deals with those conflicts. There are moments where people are staring at them and they're a little bit rude. And there's one incident where someone's an outright dick. But even in those moments, there is a clear respect for these people uh, that shines through and and, uh, it makes the film feel more noble for it. Drew, is this not just a modern day Western? If this, if John Ford were alive in 1985, is this not what he would be directing? hundred percent. This is a Western. It's, it's Shane very much. And it's all the detail work that makes these characters matter so that when you do get that final showdown, it is so important that those guys do not hurt this community. I love the little moments like I like when they eat hot dogs and Harrison digs in when everybody else goes to pray. It's a little touch and it's a great Harrison moment. His expression, that half smile, it's a great moment. Think of how beautifully directed that scene is where Samuel IDs Danny Glover from the photo. That moment in the police station where he realizes it and Harrison from across the room recognizes that this kid just had a a moment and knows his first instinct is, I got to get him out of here now. And I love, God, there's such a good urgency to this. Alexander Goodenough as one of the Amish who is courting Kelly McGillis. And of course, there is kind of a potential love triangle there. He is fantastic. 
Joseph Summer as his boss. The Maurice Jarre Oscar-winning score also uh, won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And they deserve the nomination for Harrison. This is really mature, adult, beautiful work from him. I get a little heartbroken when I look at some of the choices he made later because there was a point in the 80s where he was starting to really get filmmakers using him the right way and trusting him with great material. Viggo Mortensen's debut. That's interesting, right? Yeah, and he's good in it. It's funny. You would not look at this guy in the movie and go, oh, yeah, that guy's a movie star. He's going to jump out of here. He's going to be a movie star. In a few. N- not at all. He is not that kind of charisma on screen, but he 100% feels like he lives there. I want to end this segment on a very fascinating piece of trivia. Everybody knows that Tom Selleck famously had to pass on Raiders of the Lost Ark because he was contracted to Magnum P.I. Then he hit the movie scene with High Road to China and Lassiter and Runaway, three relatively bad films. He was offered witness and he turned it down. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't know that. I'm afraid I would have to bring that shit up if I ran into him. That's bad. Don't feel too bad for Tom Selleck, because while Witness was blowing up at the Oscars, he was shooting a little film called Three Men and a Baby, so let's not worry about him too much. So, Drew, for our next film, I'd like to introduce you through a mathematical equation. Maybe you can help me out? What, what, what would you get if you combined The Bay Boy with Mischief? Ooh, uh, heaven help us. I'd like to welcome the Virgin Martyr Girls and thank them for coming. The Brothers at St. Basil's preached against vice, lust, and disrespect. You're going to reason with a grown man in a dress? But that never stopped these guys. Her perfumed and powdered body leaning against yours. It's all legal. You ain't like this other jerks. Just got here. Heaven Help Us, rated R, starts Friday at a theater near you. Also known as Catholic Boys, this is a... In some ways, a teen sex comedy, and in some ways, a uh, coming-of-age story about a bunch of horny kids in 1965 Catholic school in New York City. I saw this in theaters as a kid and thought it was pretty hilarious. Watched it last week. Didn't really do much for me. I don't think it's a teen sex comedy. This feels more like somebody wrote a script about their experience in Catholic school in the 60s and then got it made in an era where Porky's had made money, so that's probably why somebody was willing to fund it. But the movie they turned in really isn't that at all. It's far more coming of age story. And it's very specifically Catholic school. I think there's some really good stuff in this. I like the movie, I think, more than you do. I really like some of the performances. I think uh, Malcolm Denari, uh, who we know from Christine and who is typically in horror films, I think is really, really good as Caesar, the kid who befriends Andrew McCarthy's character when he first shows up. And Caesar is the... The whipping boy. He's the the guy who takes all the shit in the school. I like the phenomenal ensemble. Uh, in addition to Andrew McCarthy, who's pretty good, you got the great Mary Stuart Masterson. She's really her, good in it. Yeah. I mean, just exuding energy in every scene. She's just electric. Donald Sutherland in a few choice scenes, you know, kind of sleepwalking, but it's still interesting to see Sutherland. How many days in- do you think he worked? I think he worked a day and a half, and then I think he worked a day and a half on that fro. <laughs> John Hurd, uh, the lovable John Hurd, as the new but noble priest. My favorite thing in the movie. He's got the easy role of being like the uh, priest who's... Who smokes and who shows up at the... At the <laughs> he's the cool priest who, if you have real trouble with another one, you'd run to him and he would help you. My main issue with the movie is that it, it seems to be a misshapen balance or an odd balance between an indictment of the Catholic school system a melodrama, and a farce. It, it try, I think it tries to be all three. It wants to be a genuine comedy. I think it wants to get the Catholic school stuff right. I don't really think it's um, terribly interested in the actual nuts and bolts sex lives of the characters. I think it's more about that age where you're starting to want those things and you're starting to talk about it a lot. And I think there's a lot of talk. I like some of the, the minor characters. I think Dana Barron and Yardley Smith are really good together, and they're in almost all of their scenes together. But for me, one of the standout performances is by a guy named Jay Patterson, who plays Brother Constance. He's a sadist. He is a terrible human being. Shouldn't be teaching children. Shouldn't be unsupervised. Absolutely should not have the authority to lay hands on anybody. And the way the movie paints the picture of him I think is not just laser accurate and specific, but 
significant. I do think there's a generation that went to school. I have been hit by a lot of teachers. And when I say hit, I mean hit absolutely physically assaulted by teachers because I went to school in areas where it was allowed and any place it was allowed, it was abused, period. Either they were allowed to hit you or they weren't. And if they were, God help you. And I saw stuff that was exactly as bad as the stuff in this movie or worse. I think, Drew, a lot of that stuff really is the best part. I mean, it's darkest, but it is also the most interesting part of the film. And I think my main issue is like, for example, the Stephen Joffrey's character, his one trait throughout the movie is that he's a chronic masturbator. Okay. It doesn't seem to fit in the rest of the film. And then there's a long payoff Here's how sequence. I think it does fit. I think it's all Michael Dunn. I think it's all Andrew McCarthy's perspective. So it's all the people he remembers from Catholic school. It's all the teachers he remembers. And it's the way it sort of looked and felt to him. So those peripheral characters, that's how he re- would remember it. But this minor, minor character who has one joke then later gets this long extended allegedly funny scene in which he can't handle the fact that he has to feed the hosts to the young girls. Did you think that sequence was funny? I think that sequence is honest. I think it is an experience that he remembers. I almost promise you some variation of that happened. There was some dude who probably passed out. To me, these all sound like stories he collected over time, and then he mashed them all together, and it's not quite exactly right, but it's... I don't think that sequence fits in the film that also deals with honest things about abuse and alienating and losing friends. I know, but I think that's that whole experience. I think there's the ups and there's the funny stuff you remember. There's the abuse that you remember. There's the kid who was a real dick to you for a while, who eventually you just, he was there. So he was kind of your friend, but not really a good guy. All of that stuff to me feels honest. I don't know that I think it's funny, but I don't know that the film is necessarily aiming at funny all the time. And Michael Dinner's not a great, great filmmaker, so I don't think he nails all of it. But I think a lot of it works, and I do think it is representative of a very particular cultural experience that he's trying to encapsulate in one big thing. Obviously, as always, I'm glad you liked it more than I did, and I certainly don't hate it. It actually has a few quietly touching moments between Andrew McCarthy and Mary Stuart Masterson for a movie that is sometimes very profane and sometimes very broad and sometimes very ugly. It has a couple of moments that are legitimately earnest and touching. So, you know, I don't, I certainly don't hate it, but. And it's time for everybody's favorite Monday night show. It's the Timothy Hutton double feature. Drew, what Timothy Hutton films do we have tonight? First up, we have the Falcon and the Snowman. I don't know who my friends are anymore. I don't know who to trust. They were best friends from boyhood. Who did you receive your instructions from? Terrorista. I am not. Then they committed a crime against their country. You want to be partners? I'm offering you a partnership. They became the two most wanted men in America. Their story is true. Leave your bags behind. We're going to get on the plane. Timothy Hutton, Sean Penn, a John Schlesinger film, The Falcon and the Snowman. Drew, I always thought this was a very good film directed by John Schlesinger, screenwriting debut of the phenomenal Steven Zalian. And while I was periodically fascinated by the performances by Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn and David Suchet, who is amazing in this movie, it's kind of got a lot of dead air in between the good parts, doesn't it? Yeah, and this, like Blood Simple, uh, the movie we did last month, this was at the Sundance Film Festival, which was the newly minted Sundance Film Festival in January. Sundance at that point was still trying to figure out what it was like. It it was so brand new that until then it had been the U.S. Film Festival and they just changed their name and kind of like rebranded and decided to have this identity. And so the very beginning of what that fest looked like was stuff like Falcon and the Snowman and Blood Simple, where studios were sort of dabbling in pickups and indies and financing stuff. And there's studio money in both of these movies, but they're also both kind of independent minded and feel like holdovers from the 70s way of thinking. So to me, The Falcon and the Snowman is a movie kind of caught in a weird place where it's an 80s movie that has a 70s heart and hasn't really figured out which version of the story it's telling. And in Reagan's America, I don't know that they were ready to tell this story yet. I don't think they knew what story they were telling. Are they heroes? Are they bad guys? Are they just stupid kids who, who were bored and had access to the wrong materials? The movie never quite figures it out. And I, I had a weird experience watching this film because my girlfriend grew up in the place this movie is set. 
literally a block from these families and knew them and knew the kids and knew the characters in the movie and was there when all of this went down. So was there for the media circus. I heard a lot as, as this movie was playing. It was a, I had a commentary track playing in the house that was quite illuminating. I think as a film, the choices they made are very confused. Lee, played by Sean Penn, is one of those characters that Sean Penn should rip to pieces. Like, he should be amazing in this movie. He was the one that was the drug dealer. He was the one that came from the wrong side of the tracks in that town and was constantly hustling and trying to make his game and was trying to get his friend to do terrible stuff with him, basically. And his friend was the kid that came from money, but came from a giant family. And it's about... One friend leading the other step by step into doing something wrong and what that wrong is. How wrong is what they do? It feels like a film of two distinct characters. There's a Timothy Hutton movie and then there's the Sean Penn movie. They occasionally intersect. But again, there's a lot of airy downtime in between like the real confrontational and juicy stuff. I don't feel like we ever see the scenes that would make the movie work. Like I never see the scene where Sean Penn really convincingly gets Chris to cross these lines. And I never see the scene where it makes sense to Chris to steal these secrets and sell them. Like they're talking around the story that is interesting here. And for a movie that's based on real people and it's very topical, it has a lot of vagaries about it. I wonder if it's simply a case of there's only so far you could go in the storytelling. There's only so much they know. And all those things they don't know, they weren't willing to even try to guess. So it's just not there. There's just not the connective material to make them live and breathe as people. True or false, Falcon and the Snowman still worth seeing for the leads and David Suchet. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's entertaining in a way that only Weasley Sean Penn can be. It's like Carlito's Way for me, where I could just watch the character. I don't even care what he's doing. If he's ordering soup, I love this guy. And I like that stuff. I like some of the nuts and bolts spy stuff. There's stuff worth seeing. But I think that if you want answers about who these kids were or what would make them do this thing, the movie simply can't offer it to you. All right. And now it's time to move over to Timothy Hutton movie number two. The little scene, but seemingly well-remembered. Timothy Hutton is taking his story to the people. He asked the authorities for justice. You can't just walk in and see the mayor. Oh, Mr. Mayor, what about my brother? Hey, shut up. But they wouldn't listen. I gotta have your ID. Now, they can't ignore him. He's bringing authority to its knees and the city to its feet. Timothy Hunter in Turk 182. I'd like to open this review with a definition of the phrase Capra-esque. And it's an adjective relating to or in the style of the movies of Frank Capra, focusing on courage and its positive effects and the triumph of the underdog. I think the stakes for any Capra-esque movie have to be very clear and they have to be very identifiable. There's got to be a, a real indignation to what goes wrong. And they try hard here. Uh, Bob York plays a fireman whose uh, little brother is Timothy Hutton. And uh, one night they're all hanging out at a bar and they're they're drinking and there's a fire across the street. And Bob York goes in, even though he's off duty to, to help people. And they won't pay him any sort of compensation or any sort of insurance or any because he was hurt off duty and because he was drunk. And so that's the story that they start to push. And the mayor's office, when Tim Hutton approaches them to get involved, completely shuts him down and he decides to get his revenge. So I want to be indignant about that. But part of the problem is Bob Urich, who I don't think does anything particularly interesting as the character here and isn't care. I want to love that guy like you. That opening act should all be about the hero worship of the younger brother and the older brother. You got to want that the same way that Tim Hutton's character does. And I don't think you do. I think the other thing that is really telling about this film is your mileage will completely depend on how charming you think Timothy Hutton is. And this is a real test of that, because I think the movie's moderately charming. And I think the only reason it works is because Tim Hutton's working really hard to try and make it work. And this is why I don't think Tim Hutton was a giant movie star 
he was a good actor because I don't think he's got movie star charisma, which is a very particular thing. Bob Clark directed uh, Black Christmas, the original. He directed Porky's Christmas Story, the atrocious Rhinestone. This was his follow up to Rhinestone. I like the moves he made after Porky's because it was clear that he didn't want to stay doing the thing he was doing, that he was determined. I'm going to do bigger stuff and I'm going to do stuff in a lot of genres and I'm going to work. I like Bob Clark's heart, man. We have it on the record. Drew likes Rhinestone and From the Hip. I like From the Hip, I think. I haven't seen it in 25 years, so we'll see. Uh, and <laughs> I might be wrong. Turk 182 is a very warmed over kind of social uplift. Though, like The movie spends a lot of shoe leather on really getting you to rah, rah, rah behind Timothy Hutton. And after a while, you're like, all right, I'm behind him. Why does, for example, I mean, this cast is sterling, man. Robert Culp as the evil mayor. Darren McGavin, Peter Boyle. This might be one of the only bad Peter Boyle performances you will ever see because he is on one level, which is hyper-caffeinated evil. It is unbelievable how evil he is incongruously evil. Yeah, it's the writing. Whereas, on the other hand, uh, Kim Cattrall, Bob Clark clearly loved her dearly and understood that she was a 1930s screwball comedian that that was who she was supposed to be and so she adds the uh, same energy here that she does to in my opinion big trouble in little china yeah it's very similar performance and similar character and she is a lot of fun she keeps the the exposition coming she has nothing to do but she's great in doing nothing and here's where that's so important she likes timothy hutton so much that i started to like timothy hutton a little more She's one of the standouts of the film, and I adore Darren McGavin. He's always yeah, he's great. great. And Bob Clark, again, Bob Clark loved him. And that's another thing I like about Bob Clark is I think he would have, if he had really stayed in big studio filmmaking, he had had a, a better experience as a filmmaker. I think he would have built that ensemble that he kept coming back to. I think Kim Cattrall would have been one of them. I think Darren McGavin would have been one of them. I think that he loved actors and was really entertained by certain things they did. And that's great. That's one of my favorite things about a filmmaker is when they enjoy the actors they're casting and they just want to see what they'll do. The true measure of a film like Turk 182 or any film that could be described as Capra-esque is the finale. I could forgive a lot of the mistakes and missteps and dull parts of this movie if it gives me a big rah-rah finale, which is what is part and parcel of this genre or subgenre. Do you think that contextually it's Rocky moment? Does it work? No. The difference is, and this is what Capra did when he was really firing on all cylinders, the finale of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington isn't that he stands up for the filibuster. It's what he says when he does it. And that's where the movie resonates now, resonated when it was made, will resonate whoever watches it whenever they watch it. Because what Mr. Smith says and the reason he does what he does matters. And it's about a decency that he expresses fully in that moment. This is a big physical thing, and it's staged really well. I have no problem with the way Bob Clark shot or staged or built the finale. It's all exactly what I'm sure he had in his head, and he does it very well. But I don't care. So what? So he spells out Turk 182. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything with that moment in the spotlight that then makes me love Jimmy one step beyond. You have to have the other part of this moment. Bob Clark sets the stage perfectly, puts Jimmy in the spotlight. Then he goes, gotta go. And that's it. Without that, the ending doesn't land. All right. Well, Drew, I feel like this is the episode where I'm going to unintentionally anger a lot of people. Wasn't a huge fan of Vision Quest. I don't love Heaven Help Us. Don't think Falcon and the Snowman is all that great. And despite the fact that I know it has fans, I think Turk 182 is a little dry. So what will I think of our next movie? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know. I might quit the podcast if the answer's the wrong answer. Um. <laughs> it opened. Can't sleep. What you need is some action. So he takes a little drive. I have something they want. I don't know what I'm having. That's ridiculous. Into the night. Rated R. Now in select areas. I don't get it. I don't get it. I love that this obscure John Landis movie in between big hits. I love that people love it, but I, I don't get it, man. Could it just be the L.A. thing that you love? I don't know. Yeah, this is I, I'm still in Chattanooga at this point. I, I haven't moved yet. 
And one of the things that I love doing at this point is going and spending the whole day at the theater because my friends were working at the theater and just let me go theater to theater and auditorium to auditorium and see whatever I wanted. So I would spend all day there. And I think I saw Into the Night by myself the first time right away. I just I loved everything about it. I'm a big fan of Ed Oaken, the character played by Jeff Goldblum. You know, at 15, when I saw it, I was not an insomniac lifelong insomniac at this point. And there is something that happens when you don't sleep right and you break and the world just stops making sense in any normal, rational way. And you have to really not sleep for that to happen for a long time. I like that this movie feels like, and I'm a big fan of this genre, this subgenre of one crazy night movies. Drew, I, you know I love dark comedy. You know I do. I don't know if it's a comedy, though. I don't have a problem with these movies that have, uh, like, Heaven Help Us, I know, has a lot of t- wild tone up and down and isn't as good as writing it out. I don't, I don't think Michael Dinner's is good at this. I know this movie's got a lot of different tones. I like all the different tones in this movie. You like the Catherine Harold gets drowned in the ocean by four thugs and then they shoot a dog and a bird. And then it's the next scene is meant to be like, hey, let's go on the road and it's fun and funny. I don't know, man. I like the way this movie works. By that point in the movie, I was like, I don't really care anymore. All your director are dozens of director cameos. There's a great little bit here by David Bowie. And by that point, I just wasn't interested anymore. It didn't have doesn't have like the the energy and the weird color that After Hours does. I like the random nature of the characters that we encounter, whether it's your brother, Bruce McGill, with the Elvis impersonator thing um, that he's got going on. Uh, I really like Richard Farnsworth when he finally shows up. But then again, I don't think Richard Farnsworth has played a false note in a single movie in his career. That guy is one of those people who, when he shows up, suddenly grounds everything and everything seems like it has more heft because of him. I like Vera Miles in the film. She's the connective tissue between the two films <laughs> that uh, into the night and after hours. And I do. I, I love the game of who's in the movie. And maybe that's ridiculous. Maybe that's a silly thing to like. But I love playing the game of, oh, my God, that's this person. Oh, my God, that's right. But if you're a director and you put 25 film directors in your film in bit parts, who is that for? Who are you doing that for? I don't know. Does it matter who it's for? <laughs> I, I really like a lot of the cameos in this. I think I think Rick Baker is hilarious when he shows up in the film. I love the way he uses Jim Henson. I think Amy Heckerling is really good in the moment she shows up. I like the bigger roles that people play in the But ultimately, I don't what does it matter who it's for? The fact that he does it and that it's a game that you can play while you're watching. Well, okay. No, you're right. It's not a fair criticism because there are many cameos in uh, Spies Like Us, Blues Brothers, that I think are clever and fun. So it's not fair for me to just knock this movie. And I don't cameos. even know that he's trying to be clever so much as it's a game he was playing. He was making this little personal film. And yeah, there's a film nerd generation of guys who make movies that are very much about movies and the movies they've watched and about genre. And they're not about anything else. And we love it when Joe Dante does it. And he makes a movie that's all super reflexive. And we love it when Quentin Tarantino does it. John Landis did it really once. This is the most self-reflexive thing he ever did, where it's just him making a movie where he's just playing. And I kind of love that this is a fairly pure expression of this guy. And I'm fascinated by it because I'm fascinated by John Landis and where it fits into his larger career. I think this is a fascinating movie because on one hand, could it be taken as a John Landis at a very difficult point in his career saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm I'm still going to make movies. On the other hand, it's kind of an ugly movie and it almost feels like a a middle finger. I don't like, fuck you. I'm still here. To me, it just feels like he's making, because the script, look, the script isn't his script. He found a script that he liked and it's Ron Coslow who produced it with George Folsey. And what I really like is I like the way he plays with the script. And I think part of that was his casting. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is very good in it. Hollywood cast her chili. They wanted her to play like a knowable ice queens. And they, they do that a lot with her over the next couple of years. It's a great point because by the time we got to see her warmer, we're thinking, why haven't we seen this Michelle Pfeiffer in years? And it's, you're right, because they always wanted her to be like a statuesque beauty queen. And as we know from the larger body of her work, that's really not her. She is the warmer weirdo. She's she's a little bit weird, and she's a little bit weird. And her and Goldblum have a, have a good chemistry together. And throughout this movie, I'm thinking I would kill to just be more into this movie, because I like these two main characters. I I like the two lead actors, but like the exploits and the bumblings and the, and the people they're bouncing off of, 
of there. I don't find any of them funny or memorable. It pains me to, you know, criticize this movie, although there are things I love about it. I absolutely adore Jeff Goldblum. And I've sat through considerably worse films than Into the Night just to savor Jeff Goldblum. But I, I do. Th- I think he's pretty I think he's pretty terrific in it. And I think especially once he realizes that it, I just I just want to sleep. And he gets to that point in the film where. It really doesn't matter what happens. As long as he gets to sleep, whether alive or dead, fine. Let's just get it done. I kind of love him in it. Yeah, I would like to uh, halfway apologize to all of our listeners for the, the cult items that I have criticized during this episode. So let us now close it down with another, not only a big hit, but also a cult sensation that is still discussed today. Five strangers meeting for the first time. Ooh. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. Five people with a talent for trouble. What was that ruckus? Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Five lives that will never be the same. Yeah, I could see you guys my friend. I'm not wrong, am I? Oh. The Breakfast Club. Demented and sad, but social. Rated R. Starts Friday at select theaters. Check newspapers for locations. This is the one that they'll they'll remember him for. Then all other conversations will kind of branch out from. And it's because he did sort of distill it all down to this one script. And and there is something wonderful about I'm going to write five archetypes of teenager and I'm going to write no exit using teenagers. And in, in doing that, what I hope to do is reveal how vulnerable they all feel. I don't care if you do or don't see yourself in any of the five characters. You've got to see yourself by the end of the movie in that thing they share, which is this vulnerable humanity. Let's do then and now. My experience with it is I saw this just before going into high school. And I knew, all right, this is not what high school is going to be like, but there are going to be characters uh, around me like these five characters. You know, I'm going to know nerdy guys. I'm going to know jocks, you know, but and, and I kind of felt like I was like peeking in on like the the older kids and I didn't really get the stress of what they were talking about like the pressures that they were dealing with I've seen this film probably 10 times in the intervening years so now I'll move over to you Drew what was your then experience with the breakfast club instant head over heels love it was important to me it was a movie that I I felt very personally about and I I saw it with my buddy Bill got dropped off, got picked up by my parents afterwards. I was still really chewing on it. I, I really had a very strong experience with it in the theater. And Bill and I talked about it a lot over the next couple of weeks. And everybody in the school was starting to talk about it. It was definitely a movie that had become a thing. And the soundtrack was everybody had to go get the soundtrack. And it started to give me a vocabulary to talk about some things that were on my mind that I couldn't articulate yet that I was starting to go through. Starman had come through and I was determined I wanted to get into film and I wanted out of where we were and I wasn't happy. And I, I was very frustrated in school and I was very frustrated with my parents. And I didn't know how to talk to them about any of it. The Breakfast Club to me felt like somebody out there understood how difficult and crazy it felt. That's what I think is so good about The Breakfast Club is I don't really feel like I'm any of those characters, but I feel like there's bits of me in all of them. And I like that writing. It's such an interesting fault line right here because you're just a few years older than me. And I saw this right before I started high school. You were already two years into high school. So our perspectives on this iconic film are very different. I looked up to these characters and you were like, well, I know these characters. But we talk about lines of experience here. Um, they smoke pot in this movie. I had not smoked pot at this point. Oh, yeah. I had, at that point, I had never smoked weed. But I, I drew. I have made up for it since. <laughs> but I was definitely reading about it at this point, And I definitely, because of the way 80s films treated it, whether it was nine to five or whether it was this. And one of the things that I will say that this film does is it normalizes it as a social experience where – when you share it with somebody, then you talk with them afterwards and there's a commonality. It is a good point. I never really, because I do love weed and I do love this movie. I never really put those two together. What's interesting, though, is that I noted that I saw it right before starting high school. So that by the time 87, 88 rolled around and I was trying to find my way with different cliques and different groups and friends in high school, this movie was already iconic. Oh, yeah. And 
I played that album. Not only did I play that song, but I love the score, the instrumental score for the film, which is really one dude in a Casio. The Keith Forsey score for this thing is definitely of the age. But at that time, I played it did you, often. Did you have that uh, that next phase, though, where you were in your, like, let's say, 22 to 28? You still respected it, but you're like, Breakfast Club's not nearly as smart as it thinks it is. No, I didn't. I didn't. But I'm fascinated by John Hughes. I think John Hughes is one of those guys who uh, like the idea that he had that overall thing he wanted to do where you went from teenager to being a young adult to being an older adult. I He had a shot at being sort of the guy that chronicled what it felt like as we grew up for a brief moment. He had his finger on that pulse and really owned the way we thought about sort of the teen experience in film. I admired it, but didn't relate to it when I was 15. I started to embrace it and love it when I was 18. I started to like not need it and reject it when I was 25. And then 30 and up, I was like, that is an admirable, well-acted, well-crafted attempt to get into the psyches of different types of young people and show them how the things that bind them together are important. How we all feel insecure at moments. Even even the rich kid, even the pretty girl, we, they, even they feel shitty sometimes. Uh, the, the, the smart kid that you think has a free ride to whatever college he wants. Well, guess what? That also comes with its own pressures and misery. Who's the best performer in this movie, Drew? Who's the best of the five? Anthony Michael. I couldn't agree more, except it's also Molly Ringwald. I think she's very good. The thing about Anthony Michael Hall for me is this is nominatable. I think the work he does here is so good. What it would have done for him if they had nominated him for this movie is it would have validated the arc that he was on. And I really, I can't emphasize how exciting it must have been if you were a director to watch this kid go from the early stuff he did if I was a director and I saw a vacation, I'd be like, holy shit, who's that 50-year-old comedy machine locked in the body of that 13-year-old? Because his timing is insane. And then if I saw 16 Candles, I'd be like, I'm building a franchise around him. Whoever he is, I have to work with him. I don't understand how anybody aside from John Hughes wasn't pushing to make that happen. And yet John Hughes seems to be the only guy who really saw it. And in this movie... He really gave him something to chew on. And Anthony Michael Hall is great, man. He has a couple of moments of where he just expresses some pain where you're like, damn, where'd you pull that from? What I like about what Hughes does in the film for everybody is he wants to humanize them, but he also doesn't let them off the hook. Anthony Michael Hall brought a gun to school. I mean, there's let's not let's not brush past that. He brought a gun to school. That's crazy. But that's the point. One of the th great things about this movie, and it goes unspoken, is that they all deserve to be punished. This movie spends no time trying to exonerate or feel sorry for them. They deserve it. Uh, and I think deep down, they all know it. Like, there's very little poor me in this. All right, Bobby has interjected with a good point in that uh, the Judd Nelson character, Bender, a large part of his character is the oh, poor me bullshit. He does have a n obnoxious wall up in front of him, but when he breaks down and explains to us the dynamic between him and his father, he's ultimately just a scared 17-year-old kid. No matter how much bravado he puts on, there's a wound there that you can relate to because he's not a 50-year-old man who's hateful. He's a 17-year-old kid who's, you know, kind of obnoxious. Here's a question for you. If there had ever been a sequel to Breakfast Club, which of them do you think would have turned out to be the douchebag? Because these characters wouldn't have stayed friends. These characters would... The easy answer is Emilio Estevez as, you know, the jock. I don't even know if Judd Nelson made it to the next Wednesday being friends with everybody. Like, I, I don't know that I don't know that I buy Bender's sincerity. If you were to do a Breakfast Club sequel, I would never imply that they were friends. Find a way to bring them back to the library for some bizarre reason and have them butt heads again. I would not be interested so much in a Breakfast Club sequel where they were friends for 20 years. The, what is truly interesting about the film is that even though it is of its moment, when I showed it to Toshi as he was getting ready for junior high, it resonated loud and clear. That's the most important thing. Does this movie speak 100 percent? 100 percent. It's one of his very favorite films. Even if the movie didn't hold up, even if it felt like, like I said, hollow and facile, which it doesn't. Those performances are so, so good. And we have to, of course, throw out love for Paul Gleason and John Kapalos. John played the janitor who is a lot smarter than they all, they all let on. And it gives them a good lesson. Don't go through life underestimating people. 
Yeah, overall, I think this is a movie that that has aged very, very well. Um, I, I'm glad to see that the National Film Registry included it. I think that, you know, Criterion including it is important. It deserves the treatment. I think that it really makes the case for John Hughes as having one of the best ears for the way young people think and talk out of any of the guys that was writing that era. And it takes a, it takes a lot for a film about young people to age that well. And so far, it really does seem like it stood the test of time. We would also be remiss if we didn't throw some love toward uh, Dee Dee Allen, who edited this movie. And dude made great choices. There's so much stuff that is on the floor for this one that makes sense. There's not a dull frame in this movie. Even when it's just two characters talking, it is always moving forward. Even in montage or in dialogue and character scenes, it is always moving forward. It is a wonderfully edited film. Yeah, seriously, uh, when you look at how many people have borrowed, whether it's the um, the iconic poster of this that has been reproduced endlessly in a variety of parodies and homages, or whether it's the editing style of the film, or, I mean, my God, the dance sequence became a meme again. There is a reason for that, which is all of this stuff really, I think, is nuts and bolts, just fundamentally great filmmaking. I am happy to say that I really do like The Breakfast Club. It holds up really well. And I also want to reiterate for the umpteenth time how much we adore every listener and every patron. If you would like to get some bonus episodes every other week, we do something fun. Uh, last episode, we had Kevin Murphy. Next week, we have Peter Hyams. If you want to uh, join the fun in those bonus episodes, go to uh, patreon.com slash 80s all over. Give us $5 a month and you will all of a sudden be a wash in a deluge of 80s all over bonus episodes and we thank you very much for that thank you thank you next time he man and the care bears both make it to the big screen we've already got a return trip to vietnam with chuck norris and rob reiner gets romantic we're gonna meet rocky dennis we're gonna get lost in america and we get sequels for porky's police academy and hey wait didn't they tell us that the last friday the 13th was the final chapter okay we're gonna find out what that shit's all about when we return for march of 1985 (laughs) 